it's Wednesday, May 29th, 2019. I'm Herbie Newell, and this is the Defender Podcast, a daily encouragement to mobilize and equip the body of Christ to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children. This daily podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, and I'm coming to you from Birmingham, Alabama. We're recently at our last Rooted in Love training conference for families. We were able to host Dr. Russell Moore, and he was able to deliver an impactful message to the families that were there to both encourage them and equip them for the adoption journey that's ahead. So we thought today we would allow you to get a sneak peek into the the message that he was able to share with these families. And so today you will get to hear Dr. Russell Moore share with the families at Rooted in Love here in Birmingham, Alabama in April 2019. And Russell Moore, he is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. The ERLC is the moral and public policy entity of the nation's largest Protestant denomination. The Wall Street Journal has called Moore vigorous, cheerful, and fiercely articulate. He was named in 2017 to Politico Magazine's list of top 50 influence makers in Washington and has been profiled by such publications as the Washington Post and the New Yorker. His latest book, The Storm-Tossed Family, How the Cross Reshapes the Home, was named Christianity Today's 2019 Book of the Year. This prestigious award was also conferred upon Moore's previous book, Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel, by Christianity Today in 2000. In addition to these titles, he's also written Adopted for Life, The Priority of Adoption for Christian Families and Churches, and Tempted and Tried, Temptation and the Triumph of Christ. Prior to his election in 2013, Moore served as a provost and dean of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, where he also taught theology and ethics. He currently serves as visiting professor of ethics at Southern Seminary, Southeastern Seminary, and New Orleans Baptist Seminary. He's a native of Mississippi, and Moore and his wife Maria are the proud parents of five sons, two of which came into their home through adoption. We hope that you enjoy this message delivered by Dr. Russell Moore at the, at the April 2019 Rooted in Love Conference. Honor to be with you tonight. I'd like for us to begin uh, by reading a pastor's scripture, very familiar to everybody in this room in Romans chapter 8, uh, starting with verse 12. And I'd like for us to read down through verse 23, Romans 8. 12 through 23. And the Holy Spirit says this to us. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit 
grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. May God bless his word to us tonight. I am a Mississippian. Uh, it's my, my native state is Mississippi. And one time, uh, several years ago, I had a student of mine who was from the West Coast, had never been in the South uh, before at all, uh, let alone the Deep South, and he was with me where I was speaking in my home state. He was sitting next to a pastor who assumed, well, if this guy was an intern with me, then I must have known him, must have known his family. Maybe he's a Mississippian, wanted to know if maybe we knew uh, people in common. So he said to my West Coast student, uh, who's your daddy? <laughs> Perfectly legitimate question in Mississippi. You're trying to figure out, you know, do I know this, this kid? My student sat there and thought, what is the proper response to this question? And said, you are? <laughs> and so this Mississippi Baptist pastor just said, what's wrong with him? In a, in a very real sense, both of them were onto something, both in terms of the question itself and the confusion. Because uh, for most of human history, people have been identified by precisely that question. Who's your family? Who are you connected to? How do we find your identity in terms of where you come from and who you belong to? And it's also true in an American culture, most of us are living in a time in which we live in a hypermobile kind of society where people often are living far away from where they previously lived, often far away from people who would make up their immediate family or their kin group. So you have this pull between family as being the defining factor in your life and family as what it is often that you're even reacting against. And we're gathered tonight thinking through these issues of preparing for adoption and getting ready in your families uh, to welcome children into your homes. At the beginning of the process, getting ready for whatever is coming down the pike in terms of finishing up home studies and getting the house ready and, and welcoming the child or children into your home. I'd like to to say to you tonight, there are really two issues at work when we're considering adoption that are going to be necessary to understand both in terms of the adoption process, but also in terms of what it is that you will bring from the adoption process to the rest of the body of Christ. There are things that you will learn in the process of adopting and in the process of parenting that are essentially necessary for the rest of the church to learn because those things are rooted in the gospel itself. And those two things have to do with identity and with risk. I want us to, to talk about both of those things uh, tonight. And then we can uh, talk about whatever questions that you all may have when we have our question and answer time here in a little bit. That first question of identity. I, uh, talk about many times the fact that my burden to talk about issues of adoption and foster care and orphan care really started about 17, almost 17 years ago 
when my wife and I were going through the process of adopting two then one-year-old boys uh, from the former Soviet Union because I was finding myself greatly frustrated in answering questions from people. We were at a time where it would have been great to be able to come to a gathering of people like this. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't have even needed to have been in the sessions to have benefited just to walk into a room and look around and say, there are other people going through what we're going through right now would have been huge uh, for us. We knew nobody who had gone through the adoption process. We, we did not know if we were making the biggest mistake in our lives. We didn't know what was going to happen in this process. And I found that when we took these two trips, first one to Russia where we met uh, the, the boys who would become our sons, we, we processed, made our, our paperwork, and then came home to wait for the paperwork to go through for the second trip to go and get them. We would have pictures of them and we would show people this one right here, this is Maxime, he's going to be Benjamin, and this one right here, he's Sergey, he's going to be Timothy. That people would often, when they saw that there were two of them, they would immediately ask the question, so are they, are they brothers? And my response would be, well, they are now. And they would always say, yeah, but are they really brothers? And I would say, yeah, they're really our kids now, so they're really uh, brothers. And they were, yeah, but are they really brothers? You know what I mean. And of course, I did know what they meant. And the reason that I knew what they meant is because the, the assumption behind that question was one of the things that made it very difficult for me to get on board with the process of adoption in the first place. When my wife came to me after years of infertility and miscarriages, and she said, I think maybe God is calling us to adopt. Uh, my response, as somebody who had been pro-adoption in the abstract, or working in the pro-life movement in other ways for years and years and years, I said, I, I would love to adopt, but I want to make sure that we, in the words I use then, have our own children first. And what was going through my mind was an assumption that I didn't even know was there, that there is a distinction between real children who come about biologically and plan B, separate sorts of adopted children that come along in a different way. What frustrated me was that in going through the adoption process and learning to love these boys, I was having my heart disrupted and changed so that I very much saw how real this was. And the frustration for me was knowing that behind the question, are they brothers? Do they have the same blood type? Do they have the same DNA? Do they have the same ancestry? There was an implied question. Do they at least have each other? And what frustrated me was that that question and the assumptions behind that question still rendered them orphans, just orphans with a better home situation than what they had before. And what I wanted to say was, no, we're not moving them 
from a bad orphanage to a good orphanage. We're not moving them from a, a group home with lots of people to a group home with fewer people. We're moving them into a real family. And as I was processing why this was so frustrating to me, I realized it's because I really hadn't grappled with what much of the New Testament is in fact about, which is that very question. That language of brothers and sisters that has become for us as North American Christians simply a matter of metaphor. Uh, we see it simply as a more spiritual or more Christian jargony way to say friend or neighbor. It's the sort of, uh, it's the sort of word that we use when we've forgotten somebody's name at church. Hey, brother, how are you doing? Because we don't see how truly radical it is for the first century church made up of Jew and Gentile to get a letter from the apostle commissioned by the Lord Jesus calling all of them together brothers. Language that was used for the people of God that started out as 12 brothers in the household of Israel to say, all of you now in Christ have a common identity as a real household that genuinely forms a new community, that genuinely forms a new family. So the argument that's being made in that passage that we read a few minutes ago is to say you can conceive of yourself in terms of the flesh or you can conceive of yourself according to the Spirit. And if you walk in the direction of the flesh, you will die. If you walk in the direction of the Spirit, you will live. And that flesh, that natural creatureliness, can show up in multiple ways. It can show up in the ways that we tend to think of when we think of carnal, somebody who's indulging uh, sensual or sinful instincts or, or appetites, but it can also show up in the people who are finding their ultimate identity in what it is that they can hold on to. I'm identifying myself according to the flesh because that is what is truly real about me. Paul comes and says, no, if you're in Christ, that means that you have come into a new family where all of you then are children of God. You're children of God. And how do you know that you're children of God? Because you cry out, all of you together, Abba, Father. And because in that crying out to the Abba, Father, you are recognized not just as genuine children of God, but also as heirs. It would have been really easy to say you've received the spirit of adoption for people in the church at Rome to say, that's right. And those of us who are circumcised are the heirs. Those of us who have a long background are the ones who receive the inheritance. You receive the relationship, but you don't have the same standing. He comes in and says, no, everybody who is part of the family of God comes in through adoption. And once you are in the family of God, adoption 
doesn't render you a different kind of family member. It tells you how you came in, but it does not define you as a different kind of family member. That's why one of the most important things that came out of my uh, journey during that time when we were grappling with the adoption process is the understanding that in Scripture, adopted is not an adjective but a past tense verb. There are not natural children and adopted children in the household of God. There are children who were adopted into the family of God. So sometimes, even now, people will say, which ones, as they look at my five sons walking through, and they know two of them we adopted, and three came along the more typical way, will say, now which ones are, which ones are the adopted ones, and which ones are the, you know, the, the real ones? And my response is, everyone that we're feeding is real. We have no androids, no cyborgs, no mannequins in this house. They're all real. Well, yeah, but you know what I'm saying. Which, which ones are the adopted ones? Now, I'll answer that question. We're not uh, embarrassed about that question. But the assumption behind that question is fundamentally biblically wrong. In the same way, uh, our uh, fourth son was three and a half weeks premature. It's part of his story, not embarrassed of that, not ashamed of that. But I never refer to, here are my four regular children and our premature son Jonah. <laughs> Nor would I ever expect that one day in my obituary, it would say, he is survived by four sons and one premature child Jonah. <laughs> that doesn't define who he is, and it doesn't define where he fits within our family. The adoption and the spirit of adoption that we have received tells us how we come into the family, but once we are there, we have exactly the same standing as every other child of God, both in terms of relationship and in terms of future inheritance. That means that what's happening in our families as we adopt is to point to, imperfectly, but to point as a signpost to that gospel uh, uh, reality of what it means to have an identity in Christ. Now, as life moves forward after adoption, <coughs> there are going to be situations that are going to come up both in the life of the child who was adopted and in the life of you as parents in that household where that tension will be tested. Sometimes I will have uh, people who were adopted who will come up and say, you know, it's just very difficult because I don't know my family of origin and so I just sit at the table sometimes and I look around at my family and I realize how different everybody is from me and I think I just don't know anybody who's like me and I just feel sometimes like an alien here. One person telling me that said you just can't imagine what that's like and I said yeah I can that's called Thanksgiving <laughs> and 
because we all operate out of our own uh, sort of experience and background, and you're assuming that all of that is because you were adopted, when in reality, a lot of that is because you're a person. And families do not replicate into carbon copies of one another. Families have multiple distinctions all over the place. And just as when I was a teenager, I could often sometimes fantasize about families on television and compare them to my parents and say, you know, if I had Mike and Carol Brady as parents, they would let me do fill in the blank. They wouldn't put me on restriction. They wouldn't expect uh, this sort of uh, grade on my report card. Mrs. Brady would just say, oh, Mike, let's be patient with him. You can do that. The same thing can happen if you're somebody who was adopted and you then are looking back and saying, well, my birth mother would be better than her. My birth father would be better than him. That is nothing to be afraid of. That is instead the normal process of somebody who is heading toward leaving and cleaving, who is trying to differentiate what does it mean for me to be their child as opposed to what it means for me to be me. If you have parents who don't see their children as extensions of them, then you have parents who are going to understand that and be able to walk through that knowing this does not mean a pulling of us apart. This means the normal human working through of identity that all of us have been through at some point or the other. Now, the reason that we need to learn this is we're going through the adoption process. And the reason we need to learn this over the years as we are consistently articulating to our children, you are my child, I am well pleased with you, I would not trade you for anybody else, is because that is not just something that kids who were adopted need. That is something that every single one of us needs because every single one of us is designed to respond to the, the message that Jesus receives from his father, you are my beloved son and with you I am well pleased. This is, this is embedded within us. If we learn in the adoption process and if we learn in the years following adoption how to make that identity clear, then we learn how to do that within the context uh, of what it means to be in the body of Christ because we face the exact same set of questions. You're going to have children who are going to be coming out of uh, sometimes very difficult situations who are going to need to have people around them, churches around them who understand those particular points of vulnerability, those particular points of trauma, uh, places that learn how to deal with fetal alcohol syndrome in vacation Bible school, learn how to deal with the autism spectrum in Sunday school. Well, guess what? That's exactly what we as the church need to know how to do anyway as we bear one another's burdens, as God is putting together in this family people who are coming out of 
all sorts of backgrounds and traumas and, and issues. We, we learn to patiently understand those things and bear with one another because we have identity in common. We need to know that as a church. And those who have adopted often have a heightened awareness of that in order to call the rest of the body of Christ to that truth of identity. The second thing is risk and suffering. You'll notice in this uh, passage of scripture, there's a lot about groaning and suffering, about the fact that the world is not the way that it is designed to be. Even that language of crying out, Abba, Father, is a terrifying image, if you think about it. This is not a child Googling into his parents' face. This is a scream. This is the language that is coming from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, screaming out, Abba, Father. It is the cry of the distressed. And what is happening here is that that cry happens when you look around and you realize and you know something around me and something within me is not the way that it is intended to be. Which means the spirit works to bring us to this point of desperation where we see that and we know that. That is what it means to be fathered by God. I talk about a lot how difficult it was for my wife and me when we went on that first trip to Russia and going into that room, seeing these two little boys every day, and every day it would be the same story. We'd get to go in there for an hour, and they would, one of them would stand there just like a little tin soldier and kind of look at us. The other one would kind of walk around a little bit in the room, very quiet in the room, and when we would leave, it was to silence. We walked down the hallway and realized, I turned to my wife and said, do you realize it is totally quiet in here and this is a building that is filled with babies and children? Only later did we learn that's not unusual for children who are in a situation like that who are crying out because they're hungry, because they're tired, because uh, they need to be cared for, when they don't get a response to eventually stop crying. And on the last day of that first trip, we went into the room and I thought, how am I going to possibly communicate to these two little boys who have gotten to know us that we're leaving and we're going to be gone for months before they'll ever see us again. And I just said to these two little boys, knowing they couldn't understand a word of English, we won't leave you as orphans. We will come to you. In Jesus' words in the Gospel of John. And we walked out of the room. As we walked out of the room, we heard one of those little boys fall face first onto the cushion of the crib and scream. And I could feel my wife starting to buckle as she was crying, and I said, no, 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 no. That is the most beautiful sound I've ever heard in my life because he knows that he has parents. He knows that somebody can hear him. And it was at that moment, I think, that I finally understood 
why the Spirit moves toward that cry to God as Father. So much so that Paul says, even when we don't know what it is that we should pray, that the Spirit intercedes for us and works within us, so guiding us to pray sometimes in utterances that are too deep for words. I don't know how many of you, and maybe, maybe even through this process, you have gotten to this point where you have found yourself in desperation, praying in a way that isn't perfunctory, that isn't a discipline, is something that seems life or death for you. Someone you love is about to die. Somebody that you're longing for, you want to come home, and there is a sense of desperation that is present there. That is a recognition of what it means to be a child and a dependent child, and we experience that as we are going through suffering. Paul puts that in the context of adoption. And here's why that's important. And here's why what you're going through is necessary for you to teach the rest of the body of Christ. We live in a time and we live in a culture where family is often idealized as an extension of the self or as a way to win and display in a culture of winning and displaying. I remember when I was a kid growing up in a, in a Christian context, sometimes lying when people would ask me, what's your favorite holiday? Because I knew if I was honest and said Halloween, some people were going to freak out and judge me. Because I knew the answer was supposed to be Christmas or Easter. But it was Halloween. And I never could figure out why until years later I realized I think the reason I preferred Halloween to Christmas or Easter is because the stakes were so much lower. You never had to go to your great aunt's house on Halloween. <laughs> Nobody had to worry about Uncle Ronnie getting his feelings hurt on Halloween. Nobody was ever going to say in the history of the world, you have ruined my Halloween. This doesn't, the stakes are very low there, where these other holidays have a great deal at stake when it comes to the way that families relate to one another. Well, why is that? Part of that is because family is so important to who we are. Part of that is because we often have an idealized view of what family should be in a way that nobody can ever live up to those expectations. So if you actually go around and you look at what's happening, for instance, with marriage rates that are being delayed, you can go around, you can talk to people who are not getting married, they're, they're living together, uh, sometimes for years and years and years, and you talk to them, you may expect that when you start talking to them about marriage, that you're going to get a low view of marriage. Sometimes you do. But usually, you don't get a low view of marriage. You get a super high view of marriage. You have people who are saying, my parents got a divorce. I don't ever want anybody else to go through that. So I want to make sure that when I marry that there is no risk of, what hap of happening to me what happened to my parents. Or I want to make sure with complete and perfect clarity 
when I marry somebody that this is my soulmate and we're not, I'm not going to be at risk of being left or being abandoned or being cheated on. So what happens? The idealization of the marriage leads to the destruction of marriage. And the way that we tend to see children as extensions of ourselves, as representations of our ideal selves that we can put forward in the Christmas letter, that we can put forward in terms of our projection of ourselves, means ultimately that we end up not able to love the children that we actually have because we're constantly comparing them to the children that we think they should be in a way that actually destroys and robs us of love. Love brings with it risk. Love brings with it the possibility of being hurt. Sometimes when we talk about adoption, we talk about foster care, we talk about other avenues of orphan care, I will have people who will come up and say, you know, we're really interested in adoption, but we really want to make sure that we do all of our background work because we want to make sure that we eliminate any possibility of risk that comes along with this. My response is to always say, you should not adopt. You should not foster. You should not have children biologically. You should not get married. You should not have friendships. You should not join a church. You should hide under the bed. Because any human relationship is going to bring with it risk. Any human relationship is going to bring with it vulnerability. That is especially true when in every situation of adoption, on the other end of it, there is a sad story. Somebody died, somebody left, somebody got hurt, and you are walking into that story. What you are doing in adoption is not taking a child out of a situation of trauma into your family story. You are joining your family story to that situation of trauma permanently. That brings with it risk. The risk is worth it. But the only way the risk is worth it is if you determine from the very beginning God providentially has brought these children into our home and that means whatever it is that comes with them belongs to us. And the Spirit will give us the resources to handle that. Which means... What I am seeking to protect is not my image, even if it's just the image of myself. What I am seeking to do is to love. It takes a long time to learn that. When our kids came home, thankfully, we adopted these first two uh, children before we had children the more typical way. Because we didn't know how difficult it was. We just assumed this is parenting. And when our first child came along biologically, I would say to my wife, this is so easy. What on earth do people complain about? And I kept thinking, at some point, that's going to change 
now I'm at a situation where four of my children are teenagers. I still say that. The children who came along biologically are 1% of our parenting allocation as opposed to the first two who were 99% of our parenting allocation at one year old and at 18 years old. That's part of the equation that comes along with it. But early on, we found ourselves going through Walmart and having one of those sons who would just erupt into uh, very loud temper tantrums when he couldn't uh, get a particular toy that he would want in the store. And I found myself at one point stopping dealing with him and looking around to make sure that no one who knew me uh, was looking at me in the store. Because intuitively, my reasoning was, if people see us, then they're going to say, hmm, see, they adopted those kids. That's what happens. Those kids that are adopted, they're wild. And then they're going to say, that's why we're not going to adopt. So by the time I had worked myself through it, the entire global orphan crisis was resting on my shoulders <laughs> in the toy aisle at Walmart. And I had to realize what was at the root of that was carnal pride from somebody who at the moment was more worried about what kind of a projection of good parenting I was giving rather than actually being in the floor with that child being a parent. That is going to be the temptation in every arena of parenting. Adoption often forces you to realize that a little bit earlier in a way that can inform everyone else and to see that you are going to have as a parent a situation where no matter how the child or children come into your family, you will have a broken heart. It doesn't matter whether your child is coming out of an extremely traumatic situation or if you are the parent who follows all of the dietary restrictions and has the wipe uh, warmers uh, there for the child and you helicopter the child, no matter what, loving another human being this much will end up in some way or the other doing to you what Simeon said to our Lord's mother, a sword will go through your heart as well. You cannot keep this child from being bullied or from having an engagement broken or from being drafted into the military or from uh, having a, a cancer. You cannot anticipate every possible thing that can happen in the life of a child and you will at some point or the other feel completely powerless. And you know why? Because you are a mom, because you are a dad, and you're pouring yourself out into the life of this child. Which means that as you're going through whatever it is that your child brings into the household, no matter what that is, God is going to be shaping and forming you through those experiences into the image of Christ. 
which means that you don't judge whether or not God is with you, and you don't judge whether or not you are a good enough parent with a prosperity gospel. You judge whether or not God is with you on the basis of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says, if you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I am with you. If we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. So that if you look back on your life right now, and you think about where are the times when Jesus was closest to me, and I look back and I can see these are the moments that I would put as the signposts in my own life of where Jesus was with me. Not many of you are going to choose the moments in your life in which you felt the strongest and the most successful. Most of you are going to point to the moments in your life when you felt the weakest, the most vulnerable, and sometimes even the most desperate. Why? Because my power is made perfect in weakness. Sometimes as we were going through uh, those, those years after the adoption, if I could go back, someone asked me today, if you could go back and talk to yourself at that point, what advice would you have? And I said, first of all, I wouldn't give myself much advice because the ignorance kind of worked for me. Not knowing what was going on worked. But also, if I had to do that, uh, what I would say is stop freaking out. The most valuable thing that ever happened was talking to a psychiatrist that was a, a friend of a friend who worked with a lot of kids who were coming out of institutionalized situations. Not because of advice she was giving, not because of strategies she was giving, but simply because when I would describe something, she said, oh yeah, oh yeah. I've seen that a thousand times. Uh, oh, okay. Well, then we can do this. Oh, yeah, yeah, you can do this. Just the, the act of saying you're not the first person who's ever gone through a situation that you don't know how to understand or describe was needed. Well, guess what? I don't just need it for that. I need it for all sorts of other things. And as you are moving into this realm of parenting through adoption. We actually need that for the rest of the body of Christ as it applies to all sorts of other things. When your child is approaching puberty, what do you do? You sit him down, you sit her down, you say, here are the things that are about to happen to you. It's normal, you're gonna be okay, you're gonna feel like you're going crazy, you're not going crazy, You'll make it through this. We actually should be doing that for midlife. <laughs> we actually should be doing that for people as they're aging uh, into being elderly. We, we actually should be doing that in every realm of life to be able to say some things are going to happen to you that you are going to think you're the first one this has ever happened to and you're not. You'll be okay. God is with you. You're going to need each other in the body of Christ to be able to say, this is parenting. We'll survive it. So will they. God's grace will be there. 
and God's grace is enough. But that means understanding what it means to have an identity in Christ through the spirit of adoption and what it means to find glory in brokenness and to find grace in suffering. That's what it means to be in Christ and that's what it means to be those who are parenting after adoption. Which means the most important question that we really have in front of us tonight is not how long does a home study usually take? It's not how do you get a kid who's coming uh, in from, from overseas into a sleep schedule. It, it's not how do I deal with some specific special needs. The most important question that we have in front of us right now is the most important question that we will always have in front of us. And that's, who's your daddy? <laughs> Who do you belong to? Where's your identity and where's your inheritance? And if that is in the fatherhood of God, don't freak out. You are not here accidentally. You have the resources that you need in order to reflect back the fatherhood of God that you have received in your own adoption. Which means we understand that and we know that and then we walk into the future living that out. We hope you have been encouraged and enjoyed this message delivered by Dr. Moore. And we thank you today for listening to the Defender Podcast. For more information or to connect with me, please visit HerbieNewell.com. To partner with Lifeline, visit LifelineChild.org. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at LifelineChild.org. Beloved, will you allow God to use the gospel through you to impact the life of a child? Please contact us because we are here to defend the fatherless. We'll see you again next week for the Defender Podcast.